Hi, everyone. We're going to start with the entirety of Numbers 31. Strap yourselves in. The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites, so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So twelve thousand men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe, were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, who took with him articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. They fought against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. They burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled, as well as all their camps. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives, spoils and plunder to Moses and Eliezer the priest and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eliezer the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, who returned from the battle. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now, kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. Anyone who has killed someone or touched someone who was killed must stay outside the camp seven days. On the third and seventh days, you must purify yourselves and your captives. Purify every garment as well as everything made of leather, goat hair, or wood. Then Eliezer the priest said to the soldiers who had gone into battle, This is what is required by the law that the Lord gave Moses. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, lead, and anything else that can withstand fire must be put through the fire, and then it will be clean. But it must also be purified with the water of cleansing. And whatever cannot withstand fire must be put through that water. On the seventh day, wash your clothes and you will be clean. Then you may come into the camp. The Lord said to Moses, You and Eliezer the priest and the family heads of the community are to count all the people and animals that were captured. Divide the spoils equally between the soldiers who took part in the battle and the rest of the community. From the soldiers who fought in the battle, set apart as tribute for the Lord, one out of every 500, whether people, cattle, donkeys, or sheep. Take this tribute from their half share and give it to Eliezer the priest as the Lord's part. From the Israelites' half, select one out of every 50, whether people, cattle, donkeys, sheep, or other animals. Give them to the Levites who are responsible for the care of the Lord's tabernacle. So Moses and Eliezer the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. The plunder remaining from the spoils that the soldiers took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 women who had never slept with a man. The half share of those who fought in the battle was 337,500 sheep, of which the tribute for the Lord was 675. 
36,000 cattle, of which the tribute for the Lord was 72. 30,500 donkeys, of which the tribute for the Lord was 61. 16,000 people, of whom the tribute for the Lord was 32. Moses gave the tribute to Eliza the priest as the Lord's part, as the Lord commanded Moses. The half belonging to the Israelites, which Moses set apart from that of the fighting men, the community's half, was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 people. From the Israelites' half, Moses selected one out of every 50 people and animals, as the Lord commanded him, and gave them to the Levites, who were responsible for the care of the Lord's tabernacle. Then the officers who were over the units of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, went to Moses and said to him, Your servants have counted the soldiers under our command, and not one is missing. So we have bought as an offering to the Lord the gold articles each of us acquired, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Moses and Eliezer the priest accepted from them the gold, all the crafted articles, all the gold from the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that Moses and Eliezer presented as a gift to the Lord weighed 16,750 shekels. Each soldier had taken plunder for himself. Moses and Eliezer the priest accepted the gold from the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord. Now we'll just flick over to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 19. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. As we begin, let's, let me pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll open God's word more. Uh, Father, your word is good for us. You are a good God, and we acknowledge that. We also want to say that sometimes your word's hard and confronting. So help us hear the truth and the beauty of you and your word, and draw us closer to Jesus today, I pray. Amen. So I don't want to put something sweet on something sour in God's word today, because it is very tempting to make a chapter like this sweeter than what it really is. But that's actually not very helpful. A passage like this, Numbers 31, actually helps round out our diet of God's Word. First of all, it should make us humble because it reminds us of the vastness of God and that we can't often tame God the way we'd like to. And I found that true this week as we looked at this, as I looked at this strange passage. So together, let's walk through it and feel the sourness, but I hope you'll also taste the sweetness of God by the time we get to the end too. So I want to acknowledge that. And as a way of getting our heads into this, um, the Russian president, he uh, has used his orthodox faith, which is central to his worldview, to justify, mind you, the invasion and violence in God's name that he's committing. And Tim Costello, if you've heard of him, uh, wrote an article in March reflecting on a meeting he once had with the Russian president. And he concluded the article and he said, this is Tim Costello, that evil is the right word to use when a leader uses religion to justify, in God's name, invasion, 
violence and annihilation. I think all Christians would agree that people have definitely departed from the faith when they do horrible things in the name of God. Abuse, violence, bullying, coercion. But in Numbers 31, we actually find ourselves in a tricky, different situation because it's one thing to read about how evil people can be, right? But what about when we're confronted with our loving, kind God saying to his people, take vengeance on Midian? I mean, just look at the first two verses. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. If, if we put this verse to the UN Council, General Assembly, and uh, we told them this is what's going to happen, they would condemn it by world opinion. So before we go too deep past verse 1 and 2, let's talk about some elephants in the room. And I hope that by the end, yes, it'll be sour still. We don't want to taint God's word, but also it'll actually bring us closer to God and his kindness. And I think that's actually really important to see that today. So let's talk about some big elephants as we begin. First elephant in the room is that 42 years earlier, God had told his people in those great 10 commands, you shall not murder. Exodus 20 verse 13. It looks like God is violating his own law and giving permission for his people to do that as well. So is this a contradiction? Is this one of those times when we cannot trust the God behind the Bible because it's, it contradicts itself? Well, we need to ask some questions because something is going on here. Something is happening. So let's ask and talk about the next elephant in the room to get an answer, is why on earth are they on a journey to get land in the first place, especially because this land is already occupied? So why do they need land? Well, God promised land to Abraham many years earlier, and he said, God said, I'll make you into a great nation. Why? So that they can live under God, showing the other nations what the one true God is like. They're going to live, Abraham's descendants, which are the Israelites, they're going to live as God's people in God's place, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden, right? And they need a created space to do that. Moreover, God also made it very clear to them that any land they possess and actually have is not theirs. They're only caretakers. Leviticus 25, 23, God reminds them that they look after the land that God has created and owns. The nations don't own the land. God generously gives it to whoever he wills, and he wants to give some to his people. Moreover, from this land, God himself, from this land and this nation, God himself would be born in time and space to show that God's rule and reign actually ultimately isn't geographical, but over every individual, no matter which bit of dirt they happen to inhabit on this planet. So land was needed to show God's people, to, sorry, for God's people to be God's people, to show the other nations who the one true God is, so that God himself could become a person. And in their history, at this moment, they haven't got any land. They lived as a whole nation for over 400 years with not a piece of dirt to their name. But then, of course, this brings us to the skeleton in God's closet, which is to get the land, they have to have war, which means fighting, which brings us to the idea of a holy war. And Christopher Hitchens, in his 2007 book, uh, called God is Not Great, 
says that religion points as everything and we need to get rid of it. And so Numbers 31 is really helpful for his argument because religion poisons this and they kill nations. I don't want to... Um, Dis, uh, I don't want to excuse the fact that, yes, religion has contributed to conflicts in history. For example, the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition are two of Christianity's less than finest moments. We'll acknowledge that. But it's also very naive to presume that getting rid of religion would be like a cup of Blend 43, just an instant way to make the world a place free of conflict. It actually turns out that violence is part of every single belief system. Yes, even secularism and atheism are a system of belief, and they are not immune from violence. From the French Revolution, to Hitler's mean camp, and to the only three formal atheistic regimes in our world, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot, violence has dominated them all. Moreover, those regimes have killed more people than all the Crusades and the Jihads of the same century combined. In the name of non-religion, turns out that we can be pretty violent too. So we must say that evil and war is not unique to religion, but actually God's view on this is really helpful. It turns out that it's not a religious problem, it's a human one. The Russian writer Alexander, and I can't pronounce his last name, spoke against communist Russia, and he said, the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The common denominator in all these things is humans, not religion. Moreover, as we look into the world of Numbers 31, evil, war, and corruption existed in all of the nations. And some of this evil, war, and corruption was actually directed at God and God's people. And that, of course, brings a judgment upon those nations who hate God and others and seek to destroy them. And we must say as well that judgment is good, isn't it? I mean, we've been given a God sense, uh, given a sense from God to have things put right when we have been wronged at work, at school, children in the playground, in the court system, when someone cheats you online. And I was talking to someone yesterday who said, I went to buy a new vacuum cleaner and I got scammed out the whole money and I'm never going to get it back. And, and they felt like a great injustice has been done against them. And of course it was. It wasn't fair that they had to lose money to someone unfairly. But ultimately, God feels the same way too. And so when we read these conquest narratives, as they're often called in in Numbers and Joshua particularly, uh, we have to understand that God is provoked by the evil of the nations around God's people. And Deuteronomy 9 makes it really clear. Makes it clear that it's never about race. That these nations that God's people go into have a very long history of provoking God to anger. And God patiently waits for the right time to judge them. Which, of course, brings us to the next question of, well, why the fighting and the war? A theologian by the name of Meredith Klein, in 1953, wrote an essay in which he started talking about this. How does God work? And he he, he coined the phrase, an intrusion ethic. And what he means by this is, it's the idea that God sometimes enters the world to do something a little different like in what he's doing here. And his idea is that should God decide to intrude into the normal workings of his world for a moment, say to bring judgment forward, as in the case of the Midianites, then he's perfectly right to do this. 
Which means the conquest narratives, the way that we have to see them, is that God is bringing forward a later judgment into the here and now to further show his grace. God intrudes a bit earlier than normal. But also God does it in a positive sense because the blessings of the gospel are an intrusion of the future grace that's ours. God gives us the spirit, the forgiveness, security about the future, etc. God intrudes some of the not yet into the now in that way. It works both ways. Which means, ultimately, this is not an ordinary conflict. This is a continuation of God's bigger war on sin and evil. Which means if we put the land and the judgment together, it also explains why these moments aren't common. You'll notice that they pull around the time of Numbers, Joshua, Judges, and then stop after that. God never commands this sort of thing from his people again. But in them, we do see something of God's nature highlighted in these moments for a time, then he continues his plan onto the next phase. We see a very clear picture of how God is opposed to evil. We see a very clear picture of the God who defends his people when they have been sinned against and who judges all the people of the earth. And for a moment, yes, he brings this forward to advance his purpose. Which means, of course, that these chapters can never be used to justify violence, abuse, neglect, anything like that from God's people today. There's just no scope for that. And that's because we have new battle lines. The battle lines that we face today are spiritual, not physical. Ephesians 6 and Colossians 2 remind us that. It's not land borders, it's spiritual ones. In fact, the battleground that Jesus fought on was the most rebellious, evil patch of land in history. And where was it? It was my heart. That's where Jesus came to rule and reclaim and reign and change and conquer. And in doing so, he also overthrew all the spiritual opposition in this world as well. And we live in that victory. Which means we now fight our remaining sin, Romans 13. We're not people. We put to death what is earthly and sinful in us by the Spirit of God, knowing that God will finally one day do away with all sin and all evil. Which means, in Matthew 5.44, we pray and love those who persecute us. Evil is not how it's supposed to be, and not how it will be. So God takes the evil in this world upon himself. He kills it, he forgives it, and he sends us out as those who love, seek, and follow Jesus to pray and be peacemakers, ambassadors of reconciliation with God and others. They're the new battle lines. Which means if we've put those elephants to bed, to mix metaphors, we can probably now go back to Numbers 31 and and look at it with the right eyes. And it's a hard few verses. And there's lots going on. But I really want us to read the whole passage as we have because there's a lot going on apart from the fighting. In fact, the action passes really quick, and it moves on to explain the reason for the battle, what God's people do when they kind of come to contact with death, and how to be fair and just in dividing the spoil. And moreover, they're thrilled to bits at the very end that God's for them. Which means this chapter is actually not about a battle, it's how to enjoy the victory that God gives. Which means the big idea of Numbers 31, if we put it in the context of the whole Bible, is that it's a chapter about celebration. And we too should celebrate Jesus' victory that he wins for us and enjoy the outcome of his battle on the cross, just as they did here. So let's see if that's true and makes sense from what we see in Numbers 31. 
A reminder, we're not moving anymore. We've, we're stuck, camped at the edge of the promised land opposite uh, Jericho and the Jordan River, and God's people will stay here for the rest of the book. And they're looking out over their promised land. And then as they look over this and, and camped and the whole Balaam thing's behind them now, uh, in verse 1 and 2, as we said, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. Yes, it's salty, it's real, it's bloody, it's violent, it's shocking. But we have to understand what motivates God to say this. The first thing we see is that it's a, it's a divine command. Moses does not wake up one morning and, no, let's, let's go raid a people group, take their women, money, gold, and land. God hates that. Second, because of God's provision and presence, the soldiers have a bank account of credibility on the part of Moses and God to obey when told to do this. The miracles of food and water, God's presence, the rescue from Egypt, all of them help establish the character of God so they will obey as what God says. Because unless you know the character behind the one giving the command, we won't understand what's being asked and why. Moreover, we learn as they go into battle, it's really different. In verse 6, six, Moses sent them in, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, who's the high priest, taking the articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. God is absolutely visible to Midian and his people. There is no doubt from anyone, from Midian or God's, that God is behind this and in it. Very obvious. And thirdly, vengeance has the idea of take meeting out justice, which means Midian must have done something, which Meredith alluded to in the kids' talk, very horrible to God's people if God says this. They did, in fact. You remember Balaam? Well, after last week, he never made it home. He was hired by the five kings of Midian, not to curse God's people, because that doesn't work, but to entice God's people. And Balaam came up with this idea. He said, let's make a political policy which says that um, meat, food, a new god called Baal, and sex is now legislated and encouraged with this new group of people, with God's people. So Midianites, take your gods and your food and your bodies to them and do your country proud. And it's a pretty horrible law, actually. And it has one purpose, to stop God's people entering the land by making them unfaithful to their God, by using the very basic and ancient human (laughs) desires of food and sex. And it works. In Numbers 25, these exotic new women, this wonderful new meat, this, this new religion, turn them away from God. And as a result, God judges his people for their unfaithfulness. God identifies in love with his people, but his, his love has teeth at times. He will not let evil and injustice be ignored from his people and the nations. Because God promises in Numbers 25, I will judge them for what they have done. And now, by God's kindness, that time has come. It was delayed. God always does it at the right time. And then a very quick single battle ensures. Verse 4 to 12, tell us what happens. And everyone plays a part, a thousand from every tribe. It's, it's a nice round number. But it's also a high point. If you remember this graph back from earlier in Numbers The first generation doesn't want to go in. They rebel, thinking they will be killed. They spiral down. This new generation, the second generation, has been obedient and actually gained victory at the Lord's command. They're trending upwards. Then with the battle over, Moses and the clan leaders 
come out to meet them. Uh, But Moses realizes pretty quickly that they haven't actually achieved the purpose God set out for them. And then if you think the the, the vengeance idea is pretty confronting, then, then, gee, verses 15 to 18 are probably just as bad. He says, you've allowed the women to live. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. So the plague struck them. Now kill all the boys and every woman who slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who's never slept with a man. And while it does sound harsh, it, it, it does make sense. The problem was that those who had led God's people to sin were, were spared. Sure, they killed Balaam and the five kings, but the women who slept with the men and enticed them to Baal, they were kept alive, which isn't justice. Midian used their gods and their women and food to entice God's people away. God gets vengeance. God's people don't actually do what God commands to, to get the vengeance. It's a picture of how sin needs to be killed and eradicated. But we have to understand too that not all Midian was wiped out because in Judges chapter 6 and 8 they come back and we have the story of Gideon. So many die, but only those responsible for leading them to sin are held accountable. Mercy is shown to the young women in this instance. And while they're taken to God's community, there is no hint in this of anything evil There's no sexual connotations or anything like that. There's nothing going against God's intent for humanity in this verse. They're not taking them to abuse them. The point in all of this is that as the nations rage against God's people, as nations entice God's people away from faithfulness to his covenant, for the sake of the health of his people, for their survival in the long run, and to show that evil is abhorrent, God judges swiftly. That's what all these conquest narratives have in common. They need to eradicate the sin and the evil that would tempt them away from God, else, as history shows us and is still true today, they will always become too much like the other nations and not remain separate holy people. They're unique in how, they, how and why they battle. But they're also unique in how they act afterwards because the next part of the chapter talks about dividing up the spoils, the soldiers, and an offering. So Moses follows this up very quickly in 18 and says, let's make sure that because you've killed and you've been exposed to death, you you actually can't come in the camp. Why? Because God is holy, death is a natural death defiles. And so fire and water now purify everything. It's only when the stain of sin and death is gone could they gather as God's people. It's messy business. Taking vengeance made them unfit for God. It shows there's a need to become unclean to deal with the uncleanness in the world. But God makes a way through washing with water, through impurity being burnt away in fire. And ultimately, we have a hint of a time when God will do this to our hearts and minds in Jesus when he purifies us from dead works to serve the living and true God. And in this instance, all are made clean and all benefit from the victory. And there's this very detailed, as again, Meredith helped us understand, description of dividing the spoils but what is in what what stands out is that everyone benefits and it's evenly distributed you know everyone gets about six sheep the warriors get two two for the priests and god everyone benefits from the victory that the few have won but something else happens in the week after the dust settles from the battle they're all clean the the commanders do a head count let's work out who died from israel and they count and they realize pretty quickly something amazing has happened in verse 48 and they come to Moses with this, this brilliant news. Hey, Moses, guess what? 
We've counted them, all the soldiers. We've got 12,000 left. Not one's missing. That means no one has died. And with the realization that God's preserved them, they bring 190 kilos, as we saw, of gold and jewelry to God as a thanks offering. And again, you have to see this in the context of numbers. This generation is so different to the first. They willingly, joyfully give to God for his faithfulness to them. But they're motivated not just by thankfulness, but by something else. In verse 50, we've brought an offering to the Lord, but then at the very last part it says to make atonement for ourselves. Make atonement for them. They're already clean. They've gone through the water. They've been washed. But they realize something else the other generations haven't. They're guilty of sin just as much as Midian. It seems as if the closer you get to a holy God, the more you obey the holy God, the more you learn to know and follow this God, it actually heightens for them their own sinfulness and God's faithfulness in this moment. Maturity as a Christian is realizing more and more that you need God's grace to cover your sin day by day. Martin Luther said at the very start of the Reformation, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the whole life of believers should be repentance. It was the goodness and kindness of God in keeping them alive that moved them towards a joyful offering and a humble realization of their sin. Because God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, isn't it? And the chapter ends with this wonderful, humble attitude. It was the, it was the, the ultimate way of fighting in this sense. They didn't keep it up for long, actually. But as we look back and see Numbers 31, and, and it is confronting in, in the fullest sense of the word, but it shows us how serious God takes sin and evil and how, it, how he views it. And because of this passage, we know that today God will take vengeance and judge evil. He will come to bring judgment upon all people, not by the hands of his people, but by the hands of his son. Because after Numbers 31, the story keeps going. And God keeps looking to a time when he will judge and destroy all that is evil and violent and abusive in his creation. And he'll do it in the place of the human heart, not outwardly. You see, just as they purified everything with fire and water, so too God will do so on a cosmic scale. And what's more, the way that God makes this happen isn't through gold or silver like through Midian, but from the spoils of another battle that happened. A battle fought many years later that covers all the sin from Adam to my youngest daughter and in between. And Peter in the New Testament would reflect upon this, on the great value of this battle, the treasure that will purify us with the background of Numbers 31 and Leviticus and Exodus. And Peter would say, you know, it was not with perishable things like silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. If you're shocked by this passage, by the vengeance of God on the evil in the physical space, then you must keep reading to see how God turns the arrow of his war boy into heaven, not pointed down on people, but at his own son. And be shocked by that. Because more precious than gold is the blood of Jesus. 
in which he came out of the heavenly city, spilled his blood, made himself unclean so that you and me can be brought into God's space, washed and purified, trusting his victory. And we appeal to him as our atonement and joy and celebration. Because as I said, Jesus fought the greatest battleground that there ever was, the patch of ground in my heart and mind. And so we follow the God of Numbers 31. And we're reminded today of the seriousness of sin. So be serious about your own sin. Be ruthless as you think about that and fight by God's grace. By the spirit and the joy of God that he gives you. But be in awe of God's kindness and grace to you in Jesus. Of how much grace and joy gives you for the heart and mind battles that you face. And then direct your attention to loving and praying for all people, pointing them to the death of Jesus as what will truly make a difference in their heart and minds too. Which means we have much to celebrate, don't we? So, let us celebrate as individuals and as we gather week by week, Jesus' victory that he wins and enjoy the outcome of his battle on the cross. Because that's what Numbers 31 points us to.